Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Okay, my name is Tyler Stovall. I'm actually the new dean of the undergraduate division of the College of Letters and Sciences. And as uh, in that position, it's my privilege to be uh, to, to work with the, the, the Berkeley Writers at Work event, which takes place um, every Tuesday, I believe. And um, it's a wonderful event that brings together writers in all different fields to talk about the craft of expressing their thoughts. We used to say on paper, but now on computer screen. So uh, it is my privilege today to introduce Professor Robert Reich, um, who has graciously taken time away from trying to save the world economy, (laughs) which I'm sure has been uh, taking up much of his time the last month or so to talk to us about writing. Uh, Professor Reich is Professor of Public Policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California at Berkeley. He has served in three national administrations, most recently as Secretary of Labor under the President uh, Bill Clinton. He has written 11 books, including The Work of Nations, which has been translated to 22 languages, no less, uh, The Future of Success, and Locked in the Cabinet, and his most recent book, Supercapitalism. I don't know, should we rethink that title at this point? I'm not sure. Um, He has also written many articles for leading publications and has weekly commentaries on public radio's marketplace. And I just wanted to read a bit from one of his books, which I think sums up, or at least for me, encapsulates his appeal as a writer. This is from uh, Locked Locked in the Cabinet, 1997, And in it, uh, Professor Reich creates an imaginary dialogue with uh, Alan Greenspan. Question. Mr. Chairman, how did a shy little Jewish guy like you get to be the most powerful man in America? Answer. I'm cunning and ambitious and very, very smart. Question. You're the nation's central banker. You should be accountable to all Americans. Answer. But I'm not, and neither is the Fed. Question, that's not fair. It's not right. Answer, nya, 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 nya. <laughs> you can't stop me. Question, can too. Answer, cannot. Question, can too. The president's my friend. Answer, so what? Question, well, you can take your crummy lunch and cram it, you, you robber baron pimp. A. Answer. Go suck in a pickle, you Bolshevik dwarf. (laughs) Who said that economics is the dismal science? (laughs) So without further ado, let me introduce, and thanks for coming, Professor Robert Wright. Thank you, Kevin. Well, thank you, Tyler. Mr. Dean, uh, maybe I should stand up. Uh, Thank you for coming tonight, or today. When I got the invitation to come and talk to you as a writer, I must say that my first response was to be a little bit shocked that I got this invitation. Because frankly, I do not really go around thinking of myself first and foremost as a writer. Uh, To the extent I think of myself as anything, uh, it is a teacher. Uh, And secondarily, somebody who tries to explain. And thirdly, somebody who tries to see large patterns in politics and the economy. Uh, And then also as somebody who tries to integrate politics, sociology, uh, and economics in ways that help people understand these large patterns. 
patterns. So writing is perhaps one methodology I use for doing that, uh, but there are others as well. Uh, and in thinking about myself as a writer, which I started to do after I got the invitation to come here today, <laughs> I started to ask myself, well, what do I really know about writing? Uh, and I came to the quite humbling conclusion that I don't know very much about writing. Uh, I'm very interested in learning from you. I don't think of myself certainly as a successful writer, although uh, my books have sold fairly well. Uh, I like writing. Maybe I should emphasize that. I like sitting there thinking and then trying to come up with the right words. Uh, and maybe thinking and coming up with the right words is writing. Um, I try to be disciplined about it. And maybe discipline has a lot to do with writing. And by discipline, I simply mean that I try to spend some of every day writing. I wish it could be the same hours every day because I think that people who use the same hours every day have an advantage. The mind almost automatically, given its plasticity, tends to go into certain motions and certain avenues uh, by habit at certain times of day. I haven't got to the point where I can manage that because I just have other things that I have to do. Uh, but writing every day to me is something that is important and it's important primarily because I enjoy doing it. So there's a lot of joy in all of this. Uh, I started writing uh, in the late 1970s. Uh, my goal my whole life, from when I was a little boy, in terms of writing, now again, never thought of myself as a writer, but to the extent that I had a goal that had to do with writing, it was writing for The New Yorker. And when I was a... I don't know how old, I think I was probably uh, an early teenager, maybe before that. Uh, my parents subscribed to The New Yorker. Uh, it was about the only quote-unquote intellectual magazine that came into our house. Uh, we were not wealthy. Uh, but my mother uh, had uh, a lot of interests in art. She was a wonderful artist, and she also admired writing. And so I would pick up The New Yorker, and I would read it. Didn't understand everything, but I admired what I found. And I also loved the cartoons. And so at the age of 10, I started to send in cartoons to The New Yorker. <laughs> and I started getting rejection slips, and then I started papering my bedroom wall with rejection slips from The New Yorker. And I thought there was something noble about that. Because at some point on some talk show on television, I had heard about writers papering their walls with rejection slips from The New Yorker. Uh, and uh, then I suppose it was uh, late 70s, uh, I was working in the Federal Trade Commission. And I had just finished my first book with a fellow uh, named Ira Magaziner. Now some of you, how many of you remember the name Ira Magaziner? Okay, few or well, there are about as many as I expected. For those of you who don't remember, uh, Ira achieved some fame uh, in 1994 when he tried to run and did run, but didn't run very successfully, Hillary Clinton's health care task force. And Ira, well, maybe the best thing to do is to read you something. 
This isn't about Ira, but it's something that I thought you might find useful. Uh, this is April 5th, 15th, 1993. This is from Locked in the Cabinet. Uh, and Locked in the Cabinet was really the first time that I'd ever tried a different form of writing, uh, a form of writing that was much more, uh, much pers more personal, uh, more uh, autobiographical, more really what I lived. Uh, and it grew out of a diary that I kept, but it wasn't a strict diary, it was more of a notebook. April 15th, 1993. We're in the Roosevelt Room listening to a presentation about the health care plan. We pore over charts and graphs and tables. It may be a good plan, but it's complicated as hell, and I'm having a hard time understanding it. If I don't get it after concentrating for two hours, Joe and Mary Sixpack aren't going to get it after hearing about it for 15 seconds on network television. Not a good omen. Gene... Gene Sperling, who was working in the White House at the time, slips me a note reminding me that today is the anniversary of Lincoln's assassination and of the sinking of the Titanic. <laughs> I recall my classes at Harvard. Some of my students used to regard public policymaking as a matter of finding the right answer to a public problem. Politics was a set of obstacles which had to be circumvented so the right answer could be implemented. Policy was clean. It could be done on a computer. Politics was dirty, unpredictable, passionate, sometimes mean-spirited or corrupt. Policy was good. Politics, unnecessary evil. I'd spend entire courses trying to disabuse them. I'd ask them how they knew they had the right answer as policy analysts. They'd dazzle me with techniques cost-benefit analyses, probability and statistics, regression analysis. Their mathematics was flawless. But I'd ask it again, how did they know they had the right answer? They never did. At most, policy wonks can help the public deliberate the likely consequences of various choices. But they cannot presume to make the choices. Democracy is disorderly and sometimes dismaying, but it is the only source of wisdom on this score. Next to the policy wonk who presumes to know what is best for the public sits the pollster who presumes to be able to tell what the public wants. The pollster's techniques are just as flawed, and his conceit is no less dangerous to democracy. The public doesn't know what it wants until it has an opportunity to debate and consider it. Engaging in a de democratic process is not like choosing a favorite flavor of ice cream. Politicians must lead. They must try to educate and persuade. They must enter into an ongoing dialogue with the public. No one can discover the best policy through analytic prowess, nor the best policy that happens to be the most popular on a questionnaire. Democracy requires deliberation and discussion. It entails public inquiry and discovery. Citizens need to be actively engaged. Political leaders must offer visions of the future and arguments to support the visions, and then must listen carefully for the response. A health care plan devised by Plato's philosopher King won't wash. And it didn't wash. Most people did not understand it. The public didn't feel that it had been involved in the policy process. 
Congress didn't even think it was involved in the policy process. Uh, the years in Washington were exhilarating for me, but also quite discouraging. And this book was a little bit of a therapeutic release done after I left. One more, and then I will get back to writing and take questions. This is from November 29th, 1993. We're at the White House. I'm at a meeting, cabinet meeting. I'm wandering through the halls of the White House and Congress with a tin cup, begging for money to upgrade the skills of working Americans. Buddy, can you spare a few billion? <laughs> the biggest single pool of discretionary money in the federal government, in the world, is the military budget of the United States. We've won the Cold War, yet are now spending more on defense than we did in 1980 when we faced the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. We're talking real money here, hundreds of billions of dollars, almost 40% of all military spending in the world, three times what Russia now spends, twice as much as the combined military spending of Britain, France, Germany, and Japan. The entire discretionary budget of the Labor Department is less than the cost of four B-2 bombers. Today in the Roosevelt Room, in the White House, Tony Lake, the National Security Advisor, informs the economic team that the Defense Department must have several billion dollars more this year than was budgeted. I ask why. Because we hadn't counted on the conflicts in Bosnia and Somalia, is his matter-of-fact reply. You mean that every time the Defense Department gets involved in a conflict around the world, you need extra money, I ask? Yep. Tony stares at me as if to say, what planet do you inhabit? <laughs> and by the way, what business is it of the Secretary of Labor how the Defense Department plans its budget? But he is courteous and cautious and bites his tongue. I am neither, and my tongue keeps going. <laughs> I thought the whole reason for having the Defense Department was to take military action. To be ready to take military action, he corrects me coldly. There's a difference. Ready? You mean whenever we actually do something, we have to pay more? I imagine buying a hugely expensive car designed solely to sit in my driveway with its engine running. Its price tag is higher if I want to actually use it. Others in the room titter, more out of embarrassment that I'm pushing the issue than out of recognition of the absurdity of the principle. Our goal, he says dryly, without looking in my direction, is readiness. We do not budget for battle. Battles are extra. He has made it clear that his end of the conversation is over. There's no point in my trying to prolong this depressing exchange. Everyone in the room knows that the Defense Department will get what it wants. Bill, actually in this I call him B, because he, I knew him for years before he became president, but I couldn't call him Bill, and I didn't want to call him Mr. President. B. Uh, B won't stand in the way of the Pentagon. Hell, Republicans and even a few Democrats are clamoring for even higher defense spending next year, and they're ready at, the, at moment's notice to call B a coward for eluding the draft. But I can't help thinking about that term, readiness. 20% of American citizens remain functionally illiterate. Yet our yearly defense spending still exceeds all the money spent by all levels of government on educating and training our people. Readiness? What about the readiness of Americans to be productive members of the world economy? 
So I vented in the book. And I also did a lot of venting when I was Secretary of Labor. Uh, one of the benefits of knowing that you don't have to stay in Washington and you don't have to stay in the cabinet is being able to make an ass of yourself sometimes when you're in the cabinet. And I did that for things I believed in. Uh, one more point I should add, and then again over to you. Most of my writing is not like that. Most of my writing is modeled after the writing of a gentleman who was something of a mentor to me. I met him in the late 70s. I started working with him in 1981 at Harvard. I had read his books when I was in college and before. I found his logic fascinating. I found his style beautiful. Uh, his name, John Kenneth Galbraith. Uh, he became a friend. And although I never said it to him directly, I always wanted to write like him. And I have not yet done so. Thank you. Okay. Well, I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you today. I must say, though, that uh, usually for these events, I try to read everything I can by our author. And you actually write faster than I read. And so I'm, I'm far behind. I've read six of your books and many of your articles. And I try to keep up on the blog, and I can't. Poor so fellow. the question is, you said that you write every day. Um, how long do you, I mean, like today, I know you've already been interviewed by MSNBC this morning. Uh, and I assume you have other things to do. So how much time are you going to write today? When are you going to write? And where do you write? Uh, well, I write uh, in my office uh, at the Goldman School. Uh, and I wrote something this morning. I took an hour out before I came here, exactly 11 to 12. Uh, and then I set aside some time this afternoon. So I only am going to have two hours today. Uh, it's not ideal. I'd like to have much more time. But is that half a book and three blog entries and no. two articles? No. The, the, this morning, that hour was set. Uh, I, I, I do a public radio commentary every week. Uh, it's like haiku. It can only be 335 words. Uh, and yet, uh, I have more than 335 words to deliver. Uh, and so I write, but most of the hour is spent trying to cut it down to 335 words. That's the hardest thing, as you know, you writers, uh, to write short rather than writing long. Uh, so that's what I did this morning. And this afternoon, uh, I have a couple of projects that are all competing in my mind uh, for writing. Uh, I find, as a teacher, that television uh, is related to writing. That is the expression as clearly and concisely as you can in ways that people can comprehend of complex material uh, is what I try to do on television. I, I try to do it in the classroom as well. They're different media, but they are connected. On Thursday night, what's today? Wednesday. Today's Tuesday? No, today's Tuesday. Uh, so uh, the day after tomorrow, I'm, I'm going to be on The Daily Show. And I'm going, and uh, I've done that before a couple of times. Uh, that is the kind of venue I like because it's a way of reaching young people. 
And although uh, it's a little bit of a roller coaster, because Jon Stewart, when you sit in front, I mean, they, I, they, I, I've done it now, I guess, three times before. Um, the producer never tells you what the topic is going to be. And uh, I've now, I suppose, got used to it, but you're standing outside, you're, you're behind a curtain. Because the curtain opens, uh, there's an audience, everybody, you know, politely applause. Uh, with regard to me, nobody really knows who I am, but I'm just very short, that's all they know, and they <laughs> applaud. And John Stewart is there and says something, and then asks a question, and then we're off. And I have no control whatsoever. Uh, and I try to maintain a little bit, just a modicum, just a, a slight slither of control, but it's not possible. Uh, so that's not the kind of television that is analogous to writing. That's really analogous to roller coaster writing. Um, and uh, also, I, a couple of months ago, did uh, what's that other show like Jon Stewart? Colbert. I did the Colbert. Uh, rapport, and that is also that's not even a roller coaster. That's just playing straight man, uh, and that's uh, actually uh, very complicated uh, because all you do is sit there and try to enjoy the experience. So, of all the different kinds of, of writing you do, and you do many different kinds, uh, not everyone probably knows that you've also written a play uh, that's been produced in several places. Uh, but so there's the articles, there's the blog. What differences are, are there differences between those and, and the book? You mentioned that, um, uh, that Locked in the Cabinet was sort of a different kind for you, and I noticed that that's really much more filled with irony, um, and you do take more risks. But, but other books like Super Capitalism are complicated, uh, tightly constructed arguments. So is there one of these you enjoy more than the other? Um, is there one that's easier for you? Uh, well, I... I have to tell you, I enjoy and enjoyed Locked in the Cabinet more than anything because it was so personal. Uh, and I've done uh, a number of articles since then, not any more books, uh, that also are from the standpoint of what I believe or experiences I've had or here I am not trying to describe the world but just trying to describe my own experience in the world or combining the two. Uh, and I want to get back to that. So that, then why don't, why don't we get to that? Um, in your program, and I'd like you to, to read this if you, if you would. It's just a short one. It's uh, the, the one from uh, Being a Dad. It's the bottom. Uh, oh, uh, this, uh, this is not locked in the cabinet, but this is uh, another piece of writing. Uh, the most important thing to know is that teenage boys are like clamshells. They open up just for a moment in order to take a, in a little nourishment or expel some dirt. But then they clam up tight again. If you're around when they open up, you have a chance to see something truly beautiful inside. Maybe a small pearl turning into a gleaming stone. Maybe a shiny, smooth inside, still vulnerable. And you have a quick chance to connect. But you have to be there in the moment. The clam shell shuts in an instant, and then you can't see or do a thing. Some of you who have had teenage boys, I've never had a teenage girl, know what I'm talking about. By the way, that teenage boy that I was talking about there, I've, I had two of them then. Uh, they're both now young men, 
And the teenage boy that I was really referring to there uh, is now here at Berkeley, a PhD candidate in sociology. And uh, he and his partner just had a little girl last week. So I now have to write something. I'd like to write something about being a granddad. So, so this piece uh, is, is different in, in several ways, uh, it, it seems to me. First of all, you're, you're not given too extensive metaphors. You, you do use them, but you, unlike other people, you use them for particular reasons. But the, this whole image that you've created here I thought was so nice. So I, I wanted to ask about your use of images, but also about writing about your son and his response and how you felt as you were writing it and knowing it was going to be published and would he be okay and, and that so. It's tricky. Uh, with Locked in the Cabinet and then a number of these small pieces I've done uh, having to do with uh, being a dad or my family, uh, it is uh, with regard to respect, right to privacy, I've always cleared it with them. Uh, and uh, I'm still quite self-conscious about it and also very respectful of their privacy. So I. Uh, I, I've been, um, now the, the trick there is I don't, even when they say sure, go ahead, I don't know that they really mean sure, go ahead. Uh, they may mean sure, go ahead because you've asked and I would, don't want to feel like an ask saying no. Uh, so it's a very delicate thing. I, 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 I don't really have the answer to doing that. Uh, if I'm not writing anything that is likely, I believe, to be particularly embarrassing to them, uh, like casting one of my sons, not even naming him, uh, and suggesting something that is quite typical of a teenager, I, I'm, I'm a little less worried than I am doing anything else. And, and so then, uh, about the images in this. So, in, in, in some of your, uh, I guess, larger, more, uh, what's the word I want, uh, heavier, heavier books, um, you, you will use images from, from time to time. But, but here, do you have an idea of why you decided to, to cast this, this whole thing? Is this really wonderful, wonderful image? Did, the question is, since you don't feel that you're a writer, but apparently the rest of us do, um, uh, how, how did you think about that, or did you not think about it? Did it just... I, did, I didn't think about it consciously. I think the images, uh, the metaphors, uh, come uh, easier to me when I am feeling very strongly about something, uh, whether it's inequality in the economy uh, or it is being a dad and trying to get through to my son, who's a clamshell. Uh, and uh, they just bubble up. It's the strength of my feeling that gives rise to the image because there's no other way of conveying that feeling. Well, then what, what do you say to, to, I know we have some freshmen in, in the audience who say, I don't, I don't have that. I don't... It doesn't bubble up for me, and there must be a secret. What well, there's no secret except to connect with the feelings. Now, that sounds kind of new age, doesn't it? Uh, but everybody here uh, has very strong feelings, I assume, about something. Uh, and uh, if you connect up with those feelings, uh, you can write. Now, you want maybe not write greatly. I mean, you may not be a brilliant writer at first, but it's connecting up with those feelings and then wanting to express to somebody else those feelings, wanting to share those feelings. Uh, I mean, that's how we do in normal life. If we feel strongly and want to connect up and share those feelings, then we are going to naturally search for ways, images, powerful images, uh, because there's no other way of sharing 
powerful feelings. That sounds utterly simplistic as I say it, but I think it's true. I was going to ask you whether it's more difficult or easier to write as the world is crumbling around us. Uh, but you've sort of answered that if you feel strongly about something. But do you feel in these times that, that it is easier for you to write? Or well, you the know, world because been, you have so much to... Uh, <laughs> the world has been crumbling for some time now. Uh, it is... Uh, no, I, I, I think... Uh, take, for example, widening inequality. Now, that began to be evident in this country in the 1970s. Uh, we could see that there was a profound departure from what had been the case in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, and the United States was uh, lurching toward widening inequality. Now, in the 1970s, when I started to pay attention to it, I was concerned. Uh, in the 1980s, when I was a professor uh, and I could study it more and try to figure out why, uh, I was getting more concerned because the pattern was showing itself to be even worse. Uh, in the 1990s, when I was Secretary of Labor and presumably uh, had something, some responsibility for it, uh, it almost drove me crazy uh, because there was so, I felt so constrained in what I could do, even though I presumably had some power to do something about it. Uh, and now it's become, well, it's almost out of control. Uh, so that's the kind of issue that I can feel, not only feel strongly about, but want to write about. Uh, the question of business ethics, uh, which is almost an oxymoron. Uh, you know, I began uh, writing about this years ago, and uh, now, uh, again, I'm seeing the consequences of yet another massive failure to understand that the private sector, if it has no ethical grounding at all, there's just no set of regulations that we can possibly come up with that can keep our economy on keel. And so the question of what business ethics actually are, what should we expect of corporations and Wall Street, other than this absurd public relations stuff called corporate social responsibility, which, by the way, I find, and, and again, I, I just, the more hypocrisy I find, uh, the more I get upset. Hypocrisy upsets me. Uh, I, I'm not cynical. I'm an idealist. I'm a Frank Capra Democrat. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a cornball. I'm a romantic. I'm an idealist. And I still, you know, I still, people say to me, how can you be, after, after being in three administrations and seeing all of that, how can you be an idealist? And I say, what alternative do we have? I mean, if we're not idealists, uh, you know, what a, what a miserable world we would live in. Uh, but the hypocrisy gets me angry, and that anger um, I've got to be careful with, because that anger can easily turn into stuff that is very, very negative and even bitter. Uh, but it also can be a creative force. And so I'm toying around with a new book about uh, business ethics and... Uh, Sort of the question again, how can we make it not just an oxymoron? Do, do you sometimes write these, these things and then cross them out? Or, um, you know, the, these things that you think you've, you've gone too far uh, that you were just talking about? I mean, do you actually write them down and then discard them? Or do you try not to write them down at all? I know that there's one theory that you should 
you know, it's the letter that you never send. You get it all out, and then you burn it. Uh, well, I don't burn them. They're, they're on my computer someplace. Uh, but I do, uh, I do try to cool off. Uh, but it's the same cooling off that I would use with regard to writing about my children. Uh, you know, powerful emotions are very important. But if those powerful emotions are not somehow channeled and tamed in some way, uh, so that you can actually communicate. I mean, if it's just powerful emotion, think of your interaction with somebody else. You just sputter. Uh, to really share, to express, requires a little bit uh, of empathy for the other person and some self-control, uh, some perhaps some irony, not too much. I think people indulge in much too much irony uh, as a way of distancing themselves. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I try to cool off and I try to ask myself, how can I best express this? Uh, the marketplace commentaries are especially hard because, again, you only have 335 words. Uh, and the hypocrisy or the problem is so large. I wrote something this morning on uh, what I hear over and over about the meltdown, uh, that the Wall Street meltdown and everything that's going on in the country right now has a lot to do with Americans living beyond their means. Uh, and people going into too much debt. And it's kind of a day of reckoning. And every time I hear that, I, my skin crawls. Because median wages are going down. And the reason people are going into debt is just to keep up with the, with the bills. And all of their bills are going up. And so the problem cannot be that people are living beyond their means. The problem is that their means are dropping. And by reframing the problem, and that, so what I tried to do this morning was write a very 335 words 335 words on that topic. Now, I am steaming. <laughs> and I'm searching for ways, very low-key, powerful, not so powerful, I don't know what I'm, I mean, I'm searching for powerful ways, of expressing that simple thought. So that leads to a question about, about drafting and, and, and revising. And let me start with, and also, who reads your, who reads your work and, and when? So... They acknowledge one of the acknowledgments in uh, supercapitalism was several people subjected earlier drafts to the sort of withering criticism only close friends can be counted on to provide. So clearly, at at points in some of your books, people do read. But so let so let me ask it in two ways. So first of all, about drafting, and then about who reads your work and how you respond to criticism. Apparently, you like a little withering criticism. I, I like it. It's very hard uh, to get withering criticism. Uh, because, especially from friends and people you trust, because they want to be friends. They don't want to give you withering words. So I, so I have a, a number of friends, maybe uh, three or four, who I can trust. Number one, trust that they will give me withering criticism. And number two, trust that their withering criticism is pretty much on the mark. Uh, and uh, I uh, don't always, I certainly don't subject everything, give everything to them. But a book uh, or, or a chapter that I'm a little bit concerned about I will. And, and drafting. How much drafting do you do? For and book. I realize I can't. For a book, I, you, know, you mean? Well, a book. I mean, you know, do you, does the blog, does the NPR, do those go through? No, the, the blog, those of you who do blogging, uh, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to write. And I don't, I, I will reread. Uh, I don't just blog and then send it out. I'll reread once or twice, but then I'll send it out. Uh, I, I just can't, I don't have the time to do much with that. Uh, public radio, I try to read it out loud. 
but I don't have the time to send it to anybody or test it. I did a New York Times op-ed this last Sunday. When I do an op-ed for the New York Times, uh, I do want other people who I trust to give me feedback because it's such a national billboard that if you uh, say something truly dumb or say it in a way that people are not going to understand, uh, the consequences are substantial. Uh, one of the frustrations that I feel with writing books is that so few, few people read. Uh, if you're not a best-selling author, um, you know, I'm, I sell, I don't know, my publisher tells me my books sell in the range of uh, 30 to 50 to 60,000 copies, which my publisher says is great. But then I say to myself, wait a minute, uh, if I'm on the Jon Stewart show, I'm reaching 4 million people. Uh, if I'm on, you know, even doing my little marketplace commentaries, uh, I'm reaching 5 million people. Uh, so if I'm really in the business of educating, uh, writing books is a very inefficient way of doing it. And by the way, those 40 or 50 or 60,000 copies, those are the number of people who buy the book. The number of people who actually read <laughs> is infinitely smaller than that. I got a, an, an email uh, yesterday uh, from um, a person, I guess uh, she was in Tennessee. She said, I've bought the paperback of supercapitalism, but uh, given everything that's happened in the market over the last month, I'm not sure I should spend the time reading it. <laughs> so I just need your assurance that it's still relevant. <laughs> well, I think we're more interested in your response. <laughs> and I said there, I wrote her, and I said, well, I, I respect your time, um, but I give you my word that I have spent much more time writing it than you will ever spend reading it. <laughs> and that I still think it was worth writing, and you have to make a choice. <laughs> well, so uh, off all our plans here. So that leads me to say that that in um, I don't think this is your very first, but it's close to the next American frontier. So it's worth reading still, even though it was written in what '89 or I mean '79, I think something like that. Um, and it it sort of scared me because I think that you're a bit of a Cassandra, you said you were just you know, a cockeyed optimist, but almost everything you say happens, and that worries me. So and, you know, everything you said in this book was, was clearly fresh at that time, but it all came true. And when I read through these chronologically, I go, maybe you shouldn't write anymore, because it yeah. keeps. No, this is, this, is, this is a weird, this is weird. This is weird. <laughs> And I don't, and I really do not believe in New Age stuff, and I really don't believe in, but it is true. Uh, and many people have pointed out to me that the work of nations, for example, which I yeah. wrote in uh, 91, they say, how did you foresee all of the things that have happened yeah. since then? And I say, I don't, I don't know. Well, then we will just... So I think we move on. Move on. <laughs> something concrete and, and something we can deal with. So still about, about critics and having people read it. Um, I want to know how you respond to the greater world of, of criticism. Uh, a review of the future of success by David Brooks in Commentary in 2001 says, but in the middle of this somewhat dated account, Reich manages to become interesting. The... <laughs> 
Oh, come on. He's, had, he's read these before. He knows. So the, the point here is, how do you respond to, to, to Craig? Do you, do you give them a thought? Do you read the criticisms? Um, do, you, do you attend to them, um, or do you just go, whatever? Well, if it's somebody whose opinion I really respect, I do pay a lot of attention. David Brooks uh, is interesting, and he can be very interesting, I, but I, I don't pay a great deal of attention to him because we're coming from very different places, I assume. Uh, uh, but a larger point, uh, I have spent uh, the better part of 25 years uh, in quote-unquote public life. Not a major, major player, but a minor player, and sometimes coming in for a lot of criticism. You can't do that without expecting a huge criticism. You can't make uh, you know, a fuss about the status quo without expecting the status quo was going to lash back. Uh, and so you have to develop a, a very, very thick hide. Uh, I used to be quite hurt by negative criticism or by, uh, you know, I mean, when I was in government, uh, people uh, being very mean, spirited. <laughs> As you can imagine. Well, you can't imagine, actually. <laughs> I mean, Washington is the, is the kind of place where a friend is somebody who stabs you in the front. <laughs> uh, but, you, you know, you just after a time, um, and maybe this is just a matter of getting older, you, you just say. So, let's, let's follow up on your, that that joke. I have something here from Reason. And I want to talk about humor in the books, uh, not, not locked in the cabinet, because that, you know, there, as we talked about there was irony in that, and you did have sort of a good time. But even in, even in books that, you know, are not meant to be filled with joke after joke, um, you do use some humor. And I thought you might read, I think I've marked it for you. This is uh, a, a passage I want you to talk about putting in a, a joke that, that's sort of not Germain, but it is germane to the, to the discussion. Uh, Dad was a member, my father, Dad was a member of what's now called the greatest generation. He lived through the Great Depression and served in World War II, although he wasn't exactly a war hero. He spent most of his time during the war taking urine specimens. Uh, one day, a country boy approached his desk. What am I supposed to do, the boy asked. Pee into one of those jars, my father answered, pointing to the row of small containers on the wall. The boy looked surprised. From here? <laughs> Dad told this story at least a thousand times. So, so you know, I, I forgot that that was in there. I know things about these books. Uh, so the, the question is, you know, it's very amusing. Uh, but it's, it's your father who's the key there because you're using him to talk about some larger issues. But the joke is not. The joke just comes from what he did during the war. So... Why, why put that joke in there? Uh, well, I think humor is important um, as a device for enabling people to focus. Uh, in my lectures, I try to use some humor. I don't plan it very much in advance, but I, I do know that uh, it's a, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Uh, both humor and narrative story are both very important for maintaining attention. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith uh, was a master of this. For those of you who know his books, uh, 
he would, with the ironic phrase, uh, or just the perfect little put-down, uh, which was very funny, uh, he would make a very large and important point. So did you, uh, you when you talked earlier about him, when, when you say that you really want to write like him, do you, do you really concentrate on what, I mean, do you look at his writing and say, how can I, how can I get to that point? Or is it something more subconscious that, or unconscious that, that you do? Yeah, some, uh, uh, well, no longer. I, I, when I began to write uh, in the late 70s, uh, I was already, uh, I loved his books. I mean, from when I read them in the 60s and the early 70s. So I did then, when I started to write, uh, reread some of the books and ask myself, what is he doing? How does he do this? Uh, but I haven't for years. So let's, let's try... Again, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the, your very first point, that you were, didn't consider yourself a writer until <laughs> we invited you to this. So I want, I want you to read one of the passages that I think is the most... Uh, I can give you this uncrumpled copy. So um, this one from, from Reason. Uh, it just strikes me as a really beautifully written passage. Uh, taking these boomer adolescents out of their homes simultaneously in the 1960s, squeezing so many of them into holding bins called universities, letting their hormones rage, allowing their anti-authoritarian, anti-authoritarianism free reign. And you had a formula for spontaneous combustion. Add in a civil rights movement that ignited the hopes of blacks until it got bogged down in northern inner city poverty, and you had an explosion. Mix in a deeply unpopular war in Vietnam whose casualties were escalating and a draft that threatened to force most young men to fight it, and you had a revolution. So it's, it's a beautifully constructed paragraph, and I'm not asking you to, to reconstruct what you were doing when you wrote this, but, but to talk about how a paragraph like that, that comes out. Does it, did it, do you feel like, if you can remember, did it take rewriting, or did it, did it earlier? You said sometimes things just, just flow. But this is, you know, mm-hmm. it's, such, it's so nicely constructed. Uh, well, this actually came out of a lot of uh, thinking I had been doing and uh, a lot of pages that I'd written about the boomers, uh, the baby boomers, the early boomers. And, and the question I asked myself was, why did the early boomers, what was there about the early boomers when they were born uh, and when they all got to university, and how many of them got to university, what was it that could explain the free speech movement and all of the stuff that we experienced in the late 60s and early 70s? Uh, and I wrote page after page after page, and then it just seemed to me, wait a minute, I can say all this much more simply in a paragraph, and much more powerfully in a paragraph. So I just squeezed it all down. So I should uh, read, I think it's something that comes just, just before that, because I think you described that so well. So my mother gave birth to me on June 24, 1946, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Twelve days later, on July 6, in New Haven, Connecticut, George W. was born. On July 21, Kenny Starr arrived. Kenny's future nemesis, Bill Clinton, born Billy Blythe III, came along a few weeks later. And on and on they emerged. George's future wife, Laura, that November, adorable Danny Quayle, the following February. Tom DeLay, later the fierce Republican majority leader in April, Hillary Rodham in October, Tom Daschle in December, sweet little, uh, I just love this part, sweet little Clarence Thomas the next, the next June, and within two years, several million other boomers, including 
cute Rush Limbaugh and cuddly little Bill O'Reilly. Well, what I, what I, the, the image I, wa I wanted to conjure up was that, you know, all of these boomers, we're really all the same, basically the same generation, and all of us were little babies. And, and thinking of Tom DeLay or Rush Limbaugh as a, you know, as a, as a newborn, and thinking of all of us, you know, in, in hospitals or wherever we were as newborns, you know, it's just sort of an amazing way of viewing all of us. I mean, we, we're all there together. We're all born around the same time. And now, you know, some 60 years later, we're all acting out in our various ways. And, do, uh, do you think Bill O'Reilly swore when he came out of the, the womb? I think he was in a rage. <laughs> he was probably jaundiced. <laughs> So things don't change, is that what you're... Uh, well, I, I'm, you know, I knew Bill Clinton. I met him when he was 22, and I met Hillary Rodham when she was 19. Uh, I met Clarence Thomas when he was about 24. So I, I sort of do have a little bit more sense of where these people came from, but not obviously them as infants. So uh, earlier when you were, you were talking about being in, in the government, I, did, I, I went through some of the Labor Department archives and tried to find some of, some of uh, the things you had written, and I found it interesting that most of your stuff is not easily accessible to the, to the general public, although the current Secretary of Labor's materials are. But I did mm. find one thing. I didn't know that. Um, um, a speech. It's probably a, a Bush administration policy. Well, I, f I assumed it was, but I didn't want to say that. You know, that, that you've been embargoed in, in some way. So I have a couple of questions, though. And, and one is, I assume, uh, you know, your name as Secretary of Labor went on, you know, hundreds of thousands of different kinds of documents that I assume some you never saw uh, of various kinds. There, there are lots of legal documents. Uh, but did you have to put your name to things that you were not happy with the writing on that you, that you would know of? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, not if it, were, if, if it was a speech or a, uh, an article. Uh, I looked it over, and I often wrote my own speeches and articles because that's what I love to do. Uh, but if it, were, if, if it was a... And even testimony. I, I did look over testimony. Uh, but uh, undoubtedly, there must have been many documents that were more prosaic that I didn't... And, and I, I've found absolutely nothing you've ever written that, had, that smacked of bureaucraties. Um, now, is there something that we don't know about that you've written that's filled with, you know, jargon and you just have kept it under wraps? Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it didn't sound, nothing that sound jargonate to you. I, I, I'm very impatient with uh, students who write uh, in narrow specialty jargon. If it can't be clearly explained in English, then they don't understand it. Um, I'm very impatient with uh, people who are in government who write in jargon for the same reason. Uh, and I have a whole set of words, impact on, you know, those kinds of things that I just hate. I mean, I go ballistic. Uh, uh, Laura Tyson, who teaches at the high school, and I have embarked on a really... A, almost ridiculous project of writing an uh, introductory economics textbook. Uh, and we have, uh, and what it means to write an introductory economics textbook, that I didn't realize when we embarked on this, is to join forces with a vast publishing bureaucracy. I mean, huge. 
uh, I mean, it's almost the federal government. It's just <laughs> you. And there are people who are editing and then editing, editing. And then you see these drafts go by with words that are jargon. And you didn't do that. Somebody else put in jargon. The idea of putting in jargon <laughs> is a, new, a whole new phenomenon. I mean, I've, I've taken out jargon from things that, uh, you know, either first drafts from the, that uh, people in government have given me. But to, to have written something and then see my writing turned into jargon purposely is a whole new experience. And, and what do you say to the, to the editor when... Well, I've tried to be very uh, understanding because they're trying to do their jobs. And to some extent, a textbook is expected to be jargony because one of the subtexts of a textbook is training people to use jargon, <laughs> uh, which always struck me as kind of bizarre. I mean, if you are training somebody to be an economist or training somebody to be a political scientist or a lawyer, uh, the idea of training them to, in the use of words that nobody else can possibly understand <laughs> and that that creates a kind of entry barrier that justifies their expertise uh, is a whole way of viewing expertise that I believe is wrong, is just plain wrong. And so I don't really want to be complicit in that. <laughs> so uh, one of your, your, your first book, I think, was co-written. And now you say you're working with Laura Tyson on this. Can you say anything about I, Laura Tyson, I don't believe, is here, so you can talk freely because it's not being taped and would never be broadcast, uh, about working with other people on your writing. You don't do it much, but you've done it some. Well, I've done, I, I did the first book, actually, before uh, The Next American Frontier. It was a, a book uh, called Minding America's Business. It came out in 1979, I believe. And that book was co-authored with Ira Magaziner. Uh, and Ira, I had known for years, and it was uh, difficult to write with somebody else, uh, just because I had ideas about what I wanted, and Ira has very strong ideas about what he wanted, so a lot of the time we were negotiating. And I think the book was pretty good, but it was not what I wanted. Uh, the only other book I've written with somebody else was with a, um, somebody who uh, was a colleague of mine at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, uh, who is and was a very dear friend. And writing with a very dear friend, who you respect a great deal, is actually kind of fun. And I enjoyed that experience. Um, writing a textbook is a totally different phenomenon. Uh, Laura is and has, I mean, she has been for years a, a very close friend. And we were in government together. And so uh, that's pleasurable. But I think she's as frustrated as I am. <laughs> so. Um, there's one more thing I want you to read, but before we get to that, uh, maybe talk more about uh, other things that you read, and is there, is there a conservative writer, oh, I hate to even ask this, but maybe there's a good answer. Is there a conservative writer whose writing you, you admire? I, I don't really read for conservative or liberal. In fact, anybody who is so patently conservative or liberal uh, that their writing uh, reeks of their ideology is not very enjoyable for me because I can, it's predictable. I, can, I, can, I know the moves. I can tell you exactly where they're going to go next. Uh, no, I like writers who are interesting, who, uh, if they're nonfiction, who are provocative. Uh, for example, Robert Wright, 
uh, has uh, written some very interesting books. I just, I, I like to read him. Uh, but in the nonfiction area, I most am most interested in history and biography. I just enjoy Well, history. and that's also something that, that reading your books becomes evident, is that, that you do base, you, you don't just start an argument, uh, but you usually base it in a, in a strong historical context. And so I assume that that, that comes from your reading, but also some... some need or something you perceive on, on your part to ground all of these things in, in history and not just start off in the middle of yeah. something. I, I again, I want to stress that in my worldview, politics, economics, sociology, and also history are all inextricably bound together. That is very difficult to think about one without thinking about the others. Uh, some of you may know that in 1890, Alfred Marshall wrote his Great Principles of Economics, which took the whole field of economics out of what had been an interrelated field called political economy. And before that, it was all moral philosophy. Adam Smith, in the 18th century, called himself a moral philosopher. Uh, and we have gained a great deal by specializing, but we've lost a great deal as well. And so one of the things I enjoy intellectually is trying to piece some of this back together. So I, uh, a mechanical question um, ab about this. So the books are filled with, with history, and, and then you're pulling in other economists and sociology. How do, you, how do you organize yourself when you're writing one of your books? Where, do you have little card catalogs? Does this all come out of your head? Where, you know, the footnotes are, are I wouldn't say endless, but they're long and, and substantive. Uh, most of us can't get a two-page argument down and have it make sense. And you do a whole book and with all these references. What's, we, want, we, you know, we want the secret, the easy-to-apply secret. I'll tell you, uh, the two books that I've written that have been hardest to write uh, were the most recent, Supercapitalism, and before that, The Work of Nations. And they were the hardest to write because I was trying to rethink a lot of what Galbraith used to call conventional wisdom. And it hurt my head, honestly. I mean, almost literally hurt my head. Uh, and uh, it was a little scary because I was beginning to see a pattern that was not the normal, uh, appropriate, uh, conventional view. Uh, and, uh, well, I, I, I mean, I just quite honestly, I found it exhausting. I mean, I went through a year of research and then a year of writing and... Uh, it was terrifying and exhausting. It was not easy, and it was not particularly a lot of fun until I got to polishing. And so, the, the, is this research on? Um, is it on your computer, and do you re, uh, retrieve it that way, or is it a mix of computer and oh, stacks uh, of uh, books? And... It's, it's all sorts of places. I, it's it's a very uh, unsystematic to begin with. Uh, it, it's it's uh, at the, at the at the early stages. I'm. I'm just going everywhere. I'm making notes to myself. I'm, I'm reading as much as I can. I'm leading to other things. It is, it is very chaotic. Uh, but I, t I tell myself it has to be chaotic initially because if I'm going to see patterns that have not been seen before, or at least I have not seen before, I've got to just look far and wide. Uh, but then uh, hopefully after a year, uh, and actually I said research for a year, but there's usually a, another year before that which is just trying to come up with hypotheses. Uh, the, uh, after a year of that, I begin to 
do some research. But even that uh, leads down a lot of roads that go nowhere. Um, so I wish I could tell you that there was a, a methodology in the madness, but there isn't. It's just madness. <laughs> well, it comes out as methodology. Um, fiction. Do you, do you read fiction? And after uh, having read some of the, the dialogues, uh, I think it's in the program, the one uh, with you and Alan Greenspan, and I know you've written the play, are you, so do you read fiction, and is there fiction in your future? I feel like there's fiction in your future. Uh, there may be. Uh, I would love to uh, write. Um, I don't know that I have either the time or the temperament or the courage to write fiction. I like plays, uh, and um, I don't know why I wrote the play that I wrote, except that I just wanted to write something. I, I, it was after the 2004 election, and I was very frustrated. And again, I was looking for therapy. And uh, so I wrote a very silly uh, and uh, ribald, and, and probably it will get me into trouble because uh, it is quite indecent uh, play. Uh, and uh, I, I was surprised that uh, a group uh, in, on Cape Cod wanted to put it on, and they sold out all two weeks of performances, and then they went to an extra week, and then a group in uh, uh, here on the West Coast uh, wanted to put it on, and they also sold out for three weeks. And, and it got very good reviews. And it got good reviews. Yeah. Uh, so I'd like to do more of that. I have a play in mind that if I can find some time, I will, I will write it. I, I, should, I should note that the, the piece that, that's in the program that Tyler Stovall read at the beginning, uh, the dialogue with Alan Greenspan, was written after, was, was written, you had gone to lunch with Alan Greenspan and you expected a hard-hitting discussion and it was sort of subdued and laid back and then you, you say, and this is the, uh, the dialogue that I sort of thought we would, would have. And by the way, it's been cut. You really need to read that because uh, it's, it's much longer, but we, we tried to pick out just just the, uh, the, the good parts. Uh, Alan Greenspan. They're all good parts. They're all good parts. Yeah. I, I found Alan Greenspan, uh, he was something of, of a nemesis. Uh, because I, 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 wrote a, I wrote a book review of his uh, biography for the Times Literary Supplement. Uh, and it enabled me to actually probe exactly what I disliked about Alan Greenspan. Because otherwise, he's a very likable man, a very sweet man. Uh, but I really dislike him. Uh, and uh, uh, I discovered in writing that book review and reading him that I dislike him not because of any uh, personality flaw, uh, but because we re he really sees the world in ways that I think are dangerous. I think that he really was powerfully influenced by uh, Ayn Rand, Ian Rand, uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, I think that he uh, has a powerful ideology that he hides. And he had more powerful, he had more power in the federal government than anybody else in the 1990s. Uh, so I think he, uh, uh, he hurt people. Uh, and in 2004, when he reduced interest rates to 1%, he and his colleagues at the Fed. And then when he, after repeated requests by a large number of people uh, to oversee uh, the lending practices of a lot of mortgage banks 
because money was so cheap, obviously every mortgage bank in the world and every other bank is going to push the money out to anybody who can stand up straight, and many people who could not stand up straight, uh, he, he refused. He said, no, we don't need any regulation. We don't need any more oversight. We don't need any more regulation. We don't need even to regulate derivatives. And that was his ideology speaking, and I knew he was wrong. Cassandra, what did I say? No, no, it's, it's, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You just look at the reality. When money is cheap, and every major institution has a huge incentive to get as many people to borrow as possible, and you have no oversight uh, and no real regulation to hold those lenders' feet to the fire, you are creating a bubble, and that bubble is going to burst, and a lot of people are going to be hurt. Which is a great uh, line, actually, from your blog, um, I don't know if it's on the sheet, about uh, the mortgage bubble you talk about. It hasn't burst, this is before, you know, it, it, it hasn't burst yet, but it has a leak the size of your average mortgage banker or something. It was very nice, very nice line. Um, quickly, and then we got to turn it over to the audience. So, um, fiction, do you, re- do you read fiction? Do you have any time, inclination? And I what, try what to. What do you like? Um, well, I, I mean, I like... Uh, Ian McKeon, I like uh, John Updike. I, I, uh, I tend to read uh, narratives, stories, great stories. I love stories. So I think we should, we should end this part with, if you will read on the back page there, um, un- unless it was all speechwriter and not you, the, the speech at the top from... Uh, uh, to the steel workers. Um, I thought that that's a, it's a wonderful, and it's different... Uh, it's really a, a, a call to arms in a, in a way that, that in your books you, don't, you, you are more restrained, I think. Uh, but I thought this was wonderful. Oh, this, I remember this. That's amazing you found this. Uh, this, by the way, the context of this, this is a, a big, big convention of union people, uh, steelworkers. Uh, and uh, I believe this is the time when I was speaking, and in the background, very quietly, somebody was playing for the crowd... Uh, one of those songs from Les Miserables. So kind of, I want you to, as I say this, I want you to hear... If you could. Uh, okay, I'll, uh, 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 very quietly hum. Okay. Steelworkers of America. You have been on the front lines of defending working Americans for much of this century. And now history is calling you again. I'll be marching with you in this fight. Not shoulder to shoulder, maybe, but my shoulder to your hip. (laughs) We'll be marching to turn back this tide of terror. We'll be marching to protect the right to strike, to keep our union strong, and to guarantee that the places where we work each day are healthy, safe, and fair. We'll be marching for American jobs, for wages that can pay the bills, and for pensions that come through when retirement arrives. We'll be marching for millions of hardworking, tax-paying, law-abiding Americans who do the heavy lifting, who get the tough jobs done, who play by the rules, and who ask in return only a fair shake and the simple opportunity to lead a decent life. We will be marching, my friends, to restore the American dream. Now that is not, I mean, that's pretty platitudinous. I, I, I do remember, you know, I did look over that speech before. Uh, I'm a little embarrassed now by it. I, would, I was moved. 
Oh. I was moved. Okay. And particularly with we the, were humming. Particularly with the uh, Les Miserables in the background. Right. It worked. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it worked for me because I, as Secretary of Labor, really did feel, and I still feel, uh, that there are huge numbers of people out there who are getting screwed. Uh, and the system is really unfair. Uh, I'm not going to get cynical about it. Uh, I think we may be on the verge, I think, of electing somebody who has the right values. Uh, I think if Obama is elected, there will almost inevitably be a period of time where people are in delirious honeymoon and then will be dismayed by the limits of politics and will blame him and there will be, uh, as there always is, a kind of disillusionment. Uh, but believe me, it will be and make a huge difference. Well, thank you for enduring this, and uh, any questions? Yes, uh, we have questions, and I've already asked him about my 401k, so <laughs> you don't need to ask, I'll just tell you what he said later. Uh, we hope we'll stick to writing questions, but we may not. Um, as Secretary of Labor and the person who's fighting, in a sense, for the people, the multitudes who are getting screwed, as he said, you said, that, you said earlier that you tried to keep yourself level-headed and not, even though there are things that get you angry, to step back from that. Can you make a case for doing that when people like Bill O'Reilly, for example, do get the backing and the support behind him because he speaks so angrily and doesn't cool off? Uh, well, I am afraid of demagogues. Uh, as people get more and more frustrated and scared, then there are demagogues on the left and the right. Uh, for every Bill O'Reilly, there's also a, a Lou Dobbs. I don't know whether you call Lou Dobbs left or right, but there are, there are all kinds of people out there who are, who are spewing lies and telling people uh, to be angry at them. Uh, and I'm not going to fall into that trap. I, I really do want people to understand what is happening to them. Yeah, hi. Uh, I wanted to talk about the culture of compassion versus the culture of selfishness. Um, my favorite sociological statistic these days is that um, the average American watches four hours a day of television and talks to their husband or wife 20 minutes, much less their neighbor. Um, and you mention about, you know, you talk about Ayn Rand, and Ayn Rand is basically saying that selfishness is good. Greed is good and, and compassion is corrupt. Uh, the question that I have is, is it possible to have a culture of compassion and therefore a politics of compassion if you don't have people in the habit of talking to each other and learning how to talk to each other and being rather in the habit of simply listening to a tube 
You know, I, I like to say that we don't have a military-industrial complex. We have a military-industrial-entertainment complex. Um, how can we build that kind of culture of cooperation? What can we do to build up the kind of communication and, and win back our communication skills so that we can have a civilization of compassion? How much time do we have together? <laughs> now, I, I, I'm, I, I just thought uh, a, a couple, about a week or so ago, I was on one of these programs uh, with, uh, uh, debating with a Republican about uh, some issue. And I was trying to be very uh, even-tempered because I didn't want to get into a yelling match. I don't think uh, that's attractive to people, and I think it does actually corrode civic values. I think one of the problems we're having in this country is that we think that the way to enter politics is to just yell and to find somebody to yell at. Uh, so I was trying to be quite even-tempered. And um, when you're on those shows, uh, you, are, you have an earpiece in your ear that is connected to a producer somewhere. And I was in the middle of talking about uh, what McCain was proposing, and I was trying to be as critical as I could, but I, and I was keeping my passion under wraps, uh, when the producer in my ear said, be angrier. <laughs> right in the middle of a sentence. And so we came to a station break, and I said, uh, did you, did you say be angrier? And she said, yes, we need you to be angrier. And I said, why? She said, because uh, a lot of people are, are just uh, surfing through their, uh, you know, all of these channels, and they, they stop uh, when people are passionate and angry. And we just, you know, we want eyeballs. And I said, but that's corroding our civic culture. And she said, but we need the, you know, we need the eyeballs. And I said, I'm not going to be angry, goddammit. Um, So I think that you, you, you are right in the sense that the models we have uh, of civic discourse uh, are unfortunate. Uh, we also, as another problem, uh, we have now through congressional redistricting and a lot of other redistricting, uh, we have safe districts, which means that uh, a lot of the action politically comes in primaries, which means that uh, it is the most extreme version of whatever political view you are talking about that tends to come to the surface, uh, expressed in extreme ways. Uh, and on top of that, we all live in bubbles. I mean, here at Berkeley, we tend to talk to people who agree with us. And um, we tend not to even come across somebody who passionately disagrees with us or articulately disagrees with us. Uh, and for all those reasons, and many more, I mean, given the media choices we have, we can read only things that support our own views. So a civic culture really depends not only on empathy, but on the possibility for creating common ground. And we are losing that possibility. Uh, so I have been urging upon Tom Bates and others here in Berkeley that Berkeley have a sister city. Enid, Oklahoma, <laughs> or something like that. And we all become pen pals. Now, that's kind of Frank Capra-ish. I apologize for that. Uh, but, but I do mean it. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I don't blame television, per se. That statistic you came up with is horrifying, about 20 minutes with your partner or spouse and 
four hours on television. But that's another issue entirely. I think it's, it really is the erosion, corrosion of our capacity to find common ground, articulate common ground, that is uh, one of the big problems we face. Um, yes? Uh, well, all I'm suggesting to you as writers, as communicators, as people who are expressing themselves, and as people who presumably care about uh, convincing others, whether it's your family or anyone else, uh, that having passion and keeping that passion uh, is extraordinarily important. It's like keeping a fire kindled. But in reaching out to others empathically and respectfully, uh, we cannot afford uh, to violate someone else's how can I put this? Dignity. And by that I simply mean that a compassionate and empathic and respectful discussion must assume that someone else begins and has arrived at a place that for them is meaningful and that a disagreement is a disagreement. Uh, what we do or what a lot of people who are angry about where things stand do very often is to assign motives uh, to those who disagree uh, that impute very bad things or assume very bad things. I, in my experience in politics, you know, I, um, most of the people I dealt with who were Republicans uh, on the House or in the Senate, they were there for the right reasons. They weren't awful people. Uh, they, were, they, they could have had much simpler lives and made more money and been with their family more if they had chosen other fields of work. So keep the passion and keep the fire, but maintain a high degree of respect and reach out to people who disagree with you. Yes. This is going back to you as a writer. Uh, you talked about um, finding a common ground and, and reaching out and being empathetic. Uh, so I just would like to know, how do you imagine your audience? And do you go through any kind of exercises to direct particular pieces of writing or types of writing to particular audiences? Or, and, and again, and everything that you've just uh, talked about is really talking about how do, you, uh, how do you imagine your audience and how do you connect with yeah. them? Um, I want to reach people who are open enough to think for themselves. I'm not writing for the converted. That's boring. Nor am I writing for people who are so ideologically committed on the other side that I can't possibly reach them. I want to write for people who want to be provoked intellectually, who want to learn. Uh, and the paradox of writing for them is I never know if and when and how I'm successful. I, I write, and then you throw these things off into the, you know, into the world, and all you have to go by are a few book reviews. And some of those book reviews are written by the ideologically committed, and so you have to sort of discount them. And then you have a few book reviews that may be uh, exactly your audience, and that's interesting, but and maybe you get a few emails, but then it goes into the world, and you have no idea whether you're reaching anybody at all. 
Uh, one thing that I really uh, love is, uh, is to get an email from a student someplace uh, a few days ago from a community college in North Carolina. Uh, you know, uh, we've just read blah, 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 blah. And it really was intriguing, and I learned a lot, and thank you. Well, that just makes me my day, if I can have that kind of consequence. Uh, but, uh, yeah. And then you. And then, and then I wondered okay. how important is teaching uh, for your writing? Uh, does the teaching provoke ideas with you? Does students contribute, do students contribute to your to the laboratory of writing? Yes. Very, very good and very important question. How important is teaching to my writing? Teaching is very important to my writing. Uh, the last book, uh, Supercapitalism, came out almost entirely uh, from my teaching. The things I discovered in teaching. Uh, and my students are very helpful in terms of asking questions that provoke me uh, to work harder. Uh, and even stories and anecdotes often come out of classroom teaching because something occurs to me. And not only is it a very important anecdote, but it fits. Uh, in fact, I want to end on this, and I apologize. We'll get together afterwards. You had a question, uh, but we don't have time. I'm told that people have to leave. But I just want to share with you this one, one thing, because it, it happened yesterday. I was in the class, and we're talking in class about stories. This is a class on leadership and social change that I teach at the Goldman School. And uh, the point I wanted to make with the students is that everybody has a story. Everybody has a narrative. And that the narrative form uh, is one of the most important motivating forms one can possibly use. My own story is the most important thing I have to convince you, or at least the beginning of a conversation. Barack Obama is known because of his story. John McCain has a story. People have their own stories. And I said to every student, you know, you have a story. You have a narrative. It's being developed. The narrative changes continuously through your life, but there is a narrative. Uh, and then I, in five minutes or four minutes, told the story, my story, why I got involved doing what I do, why I feel so passionate about what I do. Uh, and I'll share it with you if you'll... Be patient for four minutes. It will only go four minutes. And the story goes like this. I've always been very short for my age. And when I was five, six, seven, eight years old, I would be bullied in school and not beaten up to a pulp, but threatened a lot and bullied in only the ways that young kids can be bullied. And so I would latch myself on to older boys who were kind enough uh, to just befriend me and basically keep the bullies at bay because they were a few years older than I was. They didn't know that they were in a protection racket, <laughs> but they were, and I appreciated. Not many, there are usually two, maybe three. And one in particular was particularly kind. He was a very, very loving, big, big-hearted fellow named Mickey. And I didn't really see Mickey after my teenage years, but I sort of kept up with where he was doing and what he was going. He got involved in civil rights. And in Freedom Summer, 1964, Mickey 
uh, went down to Mississippi to sign up voters. Uh, his name was Mickey Schwerner. And Mickey Schwerner, along with two other civil rights workers, were met by the sheriff of Philadelphia, Mississippi, who, along with about 12 others in that town, shoved them into a station wagon and at night took them out into the country and brutally beat them until they were dead. When I heard this, that the person who had kept me from being bullied had been killed by the bullies, including a sheriff, it moved me so powerfully that I, in my own understanding of my own narrative over time, decided that I had to stop the bullies. I had to do whatever I could to protect people who were powerless. And that's the story of what I've done with my professional life and, to some extent, my private life. And in telling that story yesterday, just like I did today, it brings me almost to tears. But I'll tell you something. The narrative and the story is the way in which we communicate our passions, the way we teach, the way we generate and communicate lessons and values. And that, for writers, is one of the most basic and fundamental truths. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.